One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze. Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Monday morning, the 26th of June. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. The admirals, the generals, the Air Force and the rest of us meet in Dublin Castle for the third of four consultative forums on international security policy today. Depending on the sea, much more now in terms of both connectivity, economic um, development uh, and in terms of energy. So as we move into the offshore renewable space, and as that becomes uh, the dominant form of energy into the future, there will be a need to secure it. As we develop interconnection, we already have interconnection with the United Kingdom, we're building an interconnector with France, those interconnectors will have to be secure. And we will have to work with France, we'll have to work with other countries to ensure the security uh, of our energy infrastructure at sea. And then 97% of all internet traffic is going under the seabed. Um, and that will have to be secured um, as well. The Taunashta and Minister for Defence, Micheál Martin, making the case for holding these forums, which is examining Irish security policy. Why do we not have a citizens' assembly first before the national forum? The citizens' assembly, 99 people chosen at random, age, nationality, social conditions. It is a fair example of the Irish society, unlike this forum, which, of course, I'm not against. I'm not saying we shouldn't have a forum. What I'm saying is, let us have the 99 citizens chosen at random before this selected forum. Now, Tornister. You have read Michael D. Higgins, and he has absolutely cast a lot of doubts on this forum. So I'm asking you, and I believe that you did promise us a citizens' assembly, but let's have it first, not the stitch-up, which is what's going to happen at the forum. I'd just like like to ask all of you, do you agree that we should have a citizens' assembly first before the forum. Okay, Margareta, thank you so thank you so much now for thank you for that intervention. 
I'm going to... And it is just amazing that they've made such a bloody fuss bringing the guards and everything because I'm asking this simple question. Thank you, and Margareta, that's excellent, and thank you so much. All right, uh, that's Margareta Darcy speaking at uh, the Consultative Forum on International Security in Galway on Friday. Let's speak now uh, to Roger Cole of PANA, uh, the Peace and Neutrality uh, Alliance. Roger Cole, uh, you're due to speak at uh, the Forum at Tomorrow evening, I think it is. Uh, curious, though, th- to hear Margareta Darcy speaking there because she wasn't invited or scheduled to speak. And all the more curious to hear her say that Gardaí were on standby. I assume that meant uh, in order to remove her if necessary. A bit odd, given that she's 89 years of age, wasn't it? I'm very pleased that they bring, in, bring her to prison, I wonder. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but uh, oh, there's some lady, I'll tell you that much, anyway. Well, I, I, there has been some calls for citizens' assemblies, uh, a citizens' assembly, that is, instead of uh, the forum that uh, the government has chosen, uh, instead of going the route that they had originally intended. There's been much criticism uh, about the balance in terms of those who have been invited to speak, and your name has been mentioned a lot as the only person who has been invited to promote peace. Uh, how do you feel a- about that, and how do you feel about the forum in general, now that you are going to speak at it? Oh, well, you just have to read down through all the people who are invited, and everybody can make up their own mind uh, which way it's biased or not. Um, oh, yes, yeah, true. I mean, uh, nine, what is it, 60% are, and more, up to 70% of Irish people uh, support Irish neutrality. And because of that, the, the consequences of our uh, defence policy is based on the fact that we're neutral, that we're not involved. We don't want to get involved in all these endless wars. And that goes back right back to Wolf Tone. It's a deeply rooted value uh, of the Irish people. Mm. And it seems to me that uh, that's not the value of the current government, who are, uh, who are uh, given a choice recently between having Irish troops take part in a UN uh, peacekeeping mission or sending troops take part in this uh, emerging EU army. Mm. And Mr. Martin picked the EU army. So mm, okay. that shows you where he, that shows you where And you mean by that, PASCO? Yeah, yeah. There's basically, they're steadily building up a substantial uh, military force. Uh, John Hume, for example, uh, when he got the award for his uh, role in the Good Friday Agreement settlement at the end of the war in this country, uh, and he spoke in the Parliament, uh, said that, that this Parliament, i.e. the European Union, uh, was uh, should not be sending armies abroad. It should be sending the idea of uh, reconciliation and peace abroad. Mm. But that's clearly not the opinion of the current Taoiseach, uh, who, uh, who set up this uh, particular uh, organisation. OK, do you accept the word of uh, the government, though, that this is not... Uh, putting neutrality into question whatsoever that their intention is that Ireland will remain a neutral state? Of course I don't believe it. Um, there is clear uh, desire to destroy the triple lock and as everybody know, I should know how it came about was there was a referendum of these treaty backed by uh, the, the current government and the parties uh, they were defeated um, the establishment then realised that actually Irish people did support Irish neutrality and as a consequence, they introduced what was called the triple lock. In other words, Irish troops would not go abroad uh, without the agreement of the Dáil. 
uh, without the agreement of uh, uh, you know, uh, mm. uh, 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 of us and also the United Nations. Because if there's one organisation that small countries like Ireland need is the United Nations. And uh, we also have a very proud and uh, very, I mean, Irish people are extremely proud of the Irish Army's participation in UN peacekeeping mm. missions. Well, uh, the uh, argument uh, is that the triple lock could now prevent us from participating in peacekeeping missions. Uh, I think, Roger, if you bear with me for one moment, we can hear what Tanish Jimmy Hallmartin had to say about this on Friday. Peacekeeping, then, is another vital manifestation. It's the most noble thing you can do in the world, I think, is to be a peacekeeper. And Ireland has a strong record in that respect. We have concerns as to whether the UN will ever be in a position to sanction a peace mission again or whether various peace missions will be vetoed. But I think, as was explained yesterday, which might not be widely known, we've been part of European-led peace missions. We've been part of NATO-led peace missions, which have saved lives and which have been very effective. Um, So the issue of the future is... How does Ireland participate in, in, in peace missions into the future? We're not a military power. Our capability is not high, so we need to be realistic about that. All sorts of assertions get made, you know, about we're going militaristic and all that. Believe my Minister of Defence for six months, I don't mean this in any sort of belittling, but we're not uh, in any shape or form a military power. But what we can do, I think we do have a lot of strength in peacekeeping and knowledge built up over the years, which we can bring to situations. Okay, and the point uh, the uh, Tarnish was making there, Roger Cole, was that uh, peacekeeping missions that the United Nations may feel uh, warrant uh, some type of presence could be vetoed by Russia or China or any of the members. Well, they've never done it before. Ever. Not a shred of evidence that the Russia ever uh, vetoed a mission. The, pre- the predecessor state, the USSR, it never did it. I think China did so, in 1994, did it not? Well, China yeah. did it against, uh, yeah, because Macedonia uh, recognised uh, Taiwan as an independent state. And, of course, Taiwan is part of China. Mm. Well, they got a bit annoyed about that. It's a bit like saying, you know, that uh, Scotland is not part of England, right? Mm. Yeah. But I mean, uh, it, it's, 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 you know, once even like that, that didn't, uh, that wasn't even done by Russia. So but I does the fact that they that, never did it before not help the argument or support the argument, if you like, that the world has changed and that is why the time has now come to review security? Well, sure, the world is always changing. I've never heard the world not changing. I mean... What we're talking about is the United Nations is an inclusive global organization. Virtually every country, every country is world, as far as I know, is, is, is a member of the United Nations. It's the one opportunity uh, where Ireland has, uh, Sean, when you had really genuine uh, people like uh, Frank Aiken, who, you, who, is, who, who spent a lot of time in the United Nations, but a great role in, 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 in promoting non-proliferation of nuclear weapons. I mean, we should be proud of the United Nations and we should be proud of our uh, role in it. And uh, I don't think there's a shred of evidence whatsoever that anybody wants to veto. Uh, no one's ever done it, uh, apart from that once. And that was a very rare occasion way back in the early 70s. Mm. 
uh, that hasn't happened again. In fact, Macedonia now, now does recognise okay. Taiwan as part of China. So, I mean... Mm. Well, that's the like argument, that. though. That's the argument that the government is putting forward, uh, that we need to drop uh, the triple lock so that we can continue with peacekeeping missions. Uh, you say that that's not uh, necessary. So if we drop the triple lock, what is your fear? Fear of what? Well, that's what I'm asking you. What What is your fear? Well, what, 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 European what? army. Just, yeah. It's patently obvious that uh, Ireland is actively participating in uh, made the choice between peacekeeping or, or, or taking part in EU, but one of these EU uh, military formations. And he picked the EU military formations. I mean, I, I, mean, I don't know why it's all mm. that complicated. Really. Okay, well, what, what, what do you think the motivation for it is if, as you say, and as that Irish Times poll not so long ago uh, showed 67% of people want to, Ireland to remain neutral, what do you think the government's motivation is uh, for becoming a combative nation? No, really. I mean, I, 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 it's, it's hard to see. I mean, there's only seven and a half thousand people left in the army because they're all leaving. Certainly not getting paid well enough. The ordinary soldiers, the officers, officers are reasonably well paid, but the soldiers aren't, and that they're they're leaving to go to other jobs where they get more money. Because you see, once you actually say that all you are is a, a, basically a small regiment of, of a European army, you're not already Irish any longer. Like we were part of the British Union before, and. Reverend mm. uh, encouraged uh, thousands and thousands of people to lose their lives. And uh, he was defeated by Sinn Féin in the 1918 election and his party got wiped out. So maybe there's a kind of a residue Rebendite tradition hanging around somewhere that's been reborn. But they go on about it. Like, I mean, Irish people tend to be Irish. I know that's a major problem for some people because they think they're European. But by and large, Irish people are Irish. And mm. they, 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 we have our own state. We have our own democracy. And we make our own decisions. And it's the Irish people who, who from whom Sovereign Power Article 6 says <clears throat> that uh, it's the Irish people from whom power uh, goes. And that's the, that was the core part of uh, Eamon de Valera's uh, position. I mean, Eamon de Valera was a great leader and he, he fought a national war of independence against the army of occupation. And uh, obviously, there was a major disagreement about the results of the, the negotiated deal. But nevertheless, the reality is that um, these are the people that created this state and aspire eventually to a peaceful reunification of Ireland and the establishment of the United Ireland. And that's deeply rooted in, in our history and, and among very, very large numbers of people. And that par- core part of that is that we are a neutral state and the vast majority of people want to be neutral. They don't want to get involved in all these wars. Mm. Uh, would you be concerned that the government has done a, a deal in return for the support that we got for Brexit from the European Union or from the United States for that matter um, uh, to support uh, those countries uh, who are aligned militarily? Uh, well, I have no evidence of that. I mean, I, I, I don't know whether they did or they didn't, but the, the Brexit was essentially an economic uh, problem. Mm. Uh, and it has affected England very badly. I mean, their biggest growth, with their biggest growth industry now, are food banks. Mm. You know, I what mean, it hasn't really worked out for it hasn't really worked out for them very well. Mm. And uh, well, I'm not sure how well it's worked out for Ireland at the moment, but certainly an awful lot better thus far, if you like, uh, because yeah, of exactly, the support yeah, from yeah, Europe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I guess I'm, I obviously 
predicting the future is not one of my, one of my great uh, mm. uh, values in life. I don't, because I just don't know what's going to happen. Mm. But I do know that we have to make decisions about what's happening in our country now in order to seek that we go a certain way rather than another way. And uh, since 1996, Pana has been advocated against Irish neutrality. We did that because we believe there are people who want to destroy it. And they have a lot more money, a lot more power, you know. I mean, look at the city of debate I've asked, I'm speaking at uh, on, on tomorrow, right? Mm. I mean, there are two people who do not support neutrality and one who does. So even in this, in this debate, even there, I mean, it would be the simplest thing in the world to have two people in favour of neutrality and two people against, right? I don't think that's particularly difficult. I, I mean, they, would be par for the course with any debate, wouldn't it? Exactly. Any rate I've ever been, and it's usually, you know, ever since I was in college, you know, I went to the same university as, uh, as the current chair, and she'd be well aware that normal procedure in any debate is on, on an issue like neutrality, which is miserably now the vast majority of people support it. Nevertheless, in a debate, it should be 50 50. I mean, it shouldn't be 60, 70% on one side and 30% on the other. You know, I don't agree with that. In a debate, it's 50 50. But they didn't bother with that. You know what I mean? They just had two people who are clearly in favour of destroying the triple lock. One guy's enthusiastically in favour of joining NATO, nuclear military alliance. And uh, the other one wants to openly in favour of abolishing the triple lock. So, I mean, you're not talking about... I mean, it's such a simple thing to do, mm. have two people on one side and two people on the other, and they couldn't even do that. OK, but the government can decide uh, whether to uh, send troops uh, abroad or to involve uh, the country in whatever conflict um, may arise. Uh, if it decides to do that, it, uh, it has it within in its gift to do that without consulting with uh, the people, uh, there's no constitutional prohibition uh, on Ireland being a military state. Oh no! I mean, you could. I mean, for all I know, maybe there are people there thinking we should have a nuclear submarine base uh, in, in in Cork. I, I don't know who'd ever think it's something like that. But you never know what people got in people's minds. Well, what about uh, the Russian the submarines? <laughs> what about the Russian submarines digging up the cables deep under the sea? Well, no cables ever have been destroyed, ever, in the entire history of cables. I mean, there's no evidence for that. And if the Russians are doing that, they'll be, you know, they'll be dead in the nuclear war long before that happened. Mm, you know, right. I mean, I, I think there's no evidence that the Russians want to invade or attack Ireland either. I mean, I haven't come across it. Okay. I'd love to see someone provide the evidence that the Russians are planning to. I mean, aren't they having enough trouble in, in their own country and enough, enough troubles in Ukraine as it is? Well, I don't know. To bother, Met- to bother, to bother invading Ireland. I, I wish people would come up with some, some actual evidence that, that they plan to invade Ireland. I, I, I don't see that. Okay, well, many would say uh, that um, uh, they really are uh, in a bind at the moment uh, and uh, that there's been a proxy war with the West uh, and that could extend into a a real war and there could be attacks on uh, the West uh, and that could include Ireland's undersea cables. Uh, It could also include uh, the cables that power the country through offshore wind farms in in the future. And they're the type of arguments that are, are being made uh, for reviewing uh, the security of the country. Oh, yes. Uh, but it should, it should be a security basis of the fact that uh, reflecting the views of the Irish people. 
uh, not just people who don't want neutrality, but who want to, you know, mm. who, but people who do want Ireland to be neutral, which is the, the vast majority. Uh, and y- y- if you if you construct um, a so-called forum where virtually you know everybody, I mean, uh, is, 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 is saying one thing and, mm. and one person saying the other. <laughs> I mean, it's a good thing you have to have a sense of humour to survive this kind of, you know, we're a balance, it's a balance to think, you know. With all due respect to them, <laughs> one person is not a balance of about 80 people on the other side. Okay, uh, and you'll be letting Bridget Laffin and uh, Dan O'Brien, the economists, know uh, that uh, they're warmongers, in your view. Well, one wants us to join a nuclear armed military alliance that's willing to use nuclear weapons and has said so. And the other one is clearly against the triple lock. So there's a clear difference uh, between two people on one side and one person on the other. And that's not uh, that's not in any meaningful sense of the word uh, an actual debate forum. And I mean, as, a single, and the, as far as I know, uh, unless there's some secret people in there, I'm the only one who is actually an advocate of Irish neutrality. Uh, reflect, no, I don't look that's silly, I, I don't represent them, but I'm reflecting the views of the vast majority of the people in this country. Okay, we'll leave it there for the moment uh, and uh, I'm sure people will watch and listen with great interest uh, to your panel debate uh, tomorrow evening and thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Roger Cole, spokesperson for the Peace and Neutrality Alliance panel. Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, executives uh, from RTE will appear before two separate uh, Roxas committees uh, this week uh, the Public Accounts Committee and indeed the Media Committee. Uh, Fianna Fáil Senator Malcolm Byrne is a member of uh, the Media Committee and on the line with us. And a very good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. I'm sure, like many people, you have a lot of questions that you'd like RTE to answer at your committee hearing this week. Uh, good morning, Michael, and good morning uh, to your listeners. Uh, yes, um, RT executives are due to appear before uh, the Oireachtas Media Committee um, this week. Uh, this is, is not intended to be some kind of a show trial. Uh, what we're trying to do is to get to the bottom of um, an issue, I think, that has probably transfixed a lot of the country over the last few days, uh, how particular decisions were made in RT with regard to Ryan Tuberty's salary, uh, who signed off on them, what processes were in place. Uh, is this an isolated incident or is there a broader problem around uh, the culture uh, within um, RTE? Uh, and certainly our, our committee, we had a very good online meeting uh, last Friday and you're, you're well represented um, in the northeast, mm-hmm. by both my my friend and colleague Senator Shane Castles from Meath and Dee Mel Munster from Louth, uh, both also sit on the uh, committee. Um, we work in a very collegial way. Um, our objective at our meeting on Wednesday is to put to the RT executives uh, a series of questions to which we haven't got the answers, and hopefully that will enlighten not just us um, mm-hmm. because we, we've clearly been misled. But I think more importantly, uh, the general public, uh, the the licence fee payers. Right. Um, The Sunday Independent uh, reported yesterday on a a practice, a whistleblower that the Sunday Independent said was known to the paper, wrote a a column um, suggesting that there's a a practice which is legal in RTE 
with advertising agencies that has resulted in people in the United States going to prison because that practice is illegal because it, it distorts the market and would be seen by many to be immoral and unfair in terms of how people are rewarded. Uh, what questions will you have to ask RTE about that? So I, I think there's there's two elements to this. I think first we need further clarity around the very specific nature of uh, the Ryan Tuberty deal, uh, how it was done and how it was signed off. And in D Forbes' resignation statement this morning, uh, we do have um, some more answers, although there is quite a bit of a way to go, and I do mm. hope D Forbes, uh, as the outgoing director general, will appear before our committee on Wednesday. So well, I think many would expect that she won't, that she's jumped off the ship now uh, before she's had to face your committee or the well, public accounts. I, I, mm-hmm. think, I, think that would be, uh, I think that would be a wrong move on her part. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's her opportunity uh, to come out and hold her hands up mm-hmm. and say exactly what has happened. Well, what has happened, because uh, the Sunday Independent was suggesting yesterday that the Ryan Turbity uh, scandal is just the tip of uh, the iceberg and well, that RTE may have paid over €50 million Euro in the same way, uh, guaranteeing business for RTE uh, at the cost of other competitors, whether that was TV3 or Virgin Media or local radio or whatever. Well, well yes, and, and this, was, this was the second element of what our committee is going to establish, whether the Ryan Turbidy case was an isolated case um, or it's part of a, a broader range of practices. In other words, are there others within RTE who may have availed of similar deals and also you know, mm. questions around financial and corporate governance uh, within uh, within the institution. Yeah, but apart from a statement issued by RTE yesterday uh, that uh, they're standing over that practice uh, that was criticised in the Sunday Independent saying that there's nothing illegal about it. Yeah, well, well on, on, on the face of it, um, there is nothing unlawful um, that has been done. What, is, what seems here is I suppose what a lot of people might call sharp practice. Um, I think it's it's wrong. I mean, what's particularly annoying is that when the figures paid to the or, you know the, the, the top ten earners in RT are published, mm. um, there's there's always you know quite a lot of attention uh, paid to it. It's covered across the papers. We debate it um, in the Oireachtas. People know about this, and, and I think a lot of people were just asking. You know, there were obviously a few people in RT and elsewhere who knew that the figures that they published, at least in the case of Ryan Tuberty, were incorrect. Mm. Uh, did nobody somewhere at the Orders and Risk Committee or at the Executive Board of RT um, put their hand up and say, uh, folks, uh, this is not correct. We know that this is not correct uh, and seek to correct the record. And the problem was, was that this didn't just happen one year. It happened over a series uh, of, of years. But up to 50 million. I mean, the example I was given in the paper was that if a company had €100,000 to spend on advertising and the obvious thing to do was to spend 50 on RTE and 50 on Virgin Media, that RTE would go to the advertising agency and say, give us 70,000 out of the spend and only spend 30,000 on Virgin Media. And if you do that, we won't actually charge you 70,000. We'll charge you 60,000, let's say, and we'll give you back 10,000 in that credit note. And you don't have to say a word to anybody, including the company that's paying you 100,000. When, uh, in fact, they're only getting 90,000 worth of advertising. Yeah, no, I, it, it is correct. And what does seem to be uh, you know, a lot of shop practice being engaged on, on the part of RT. And we do need, I mean, I read the story in yesterday from the Independent. Uh, this is, as I said, the, the question around the culture that may have existed 
uh, within the national broadcaster. Uh, and, uh, you know, what we're trying to do at the moment is to establish the facts as to exactly everything that has been going on. Uh, and then coming from the facts, um, what we then need to do, and we're obviously anxiously waiting the, the Grant Thornton report, mm. the audit that's, that's been carried out in Zorty as well, on foot of that, action is going to have to be taken. Okay. Uh, one, there would have to be internal action in RTE, uh, but I'm quite certain uh, that the Arts and Culture Minister, Catherine Martin, that she mm. will also take action uh, on foot of on foot of, uh, of what's, what's okay, happening. Okay, and what about this uh, practice? What about this practice of RTE presenters being on the payroll of private companies? I just cannot get my head around this. Ryan Turbidy was in a, a position where he could have anybody of importance in front of him, uh, whether that was the Taoiseach, the President, uh, or God knows. Uh, uh, and that one uh, presenter in RTE was in such a, a position uh, that they were able to call uh, the most... Um, important people uh, in the country in front of them uh, and be on the payroll of a, a commercial company regardless of how those interviews went uh, I think uh, uh, there was never any great shocks with Ryan Turbidy's interviews they'd often uh, been seen as uh, soft interviews or whatever but regardless of that the fact that you could have people of huge importance in front of you while you're on the payroll of a commercial company regardless of who that company is is just at odds with everything that I understand about conflict of interest No I, I, I agree with you I mean there is a very serious question and I know you know, the National Union of Journalists have been raising it quite regularly as to why um, RD have, uh, the, has entered into these type of contractual arrangements with people who, you know, for everybody else, as far as we're concerned, Ryan Tuberty is an employee of RT. He works for RT. Um, no difference to, you know, any of the other big names that, that, that are there and appear regularly on screen. In the same way, for instance, Michael Reed is an employee of LMFM. Um, you know, the the, the, the the approach that's been taken by RTE uh, here is clearly wrong. Um, what, what has now happened is that there's a bit of light finally being shone on some of these practices uh, within the national broadcaster. So we've got to establish the full extent of what has been going on because we don't know uh, you know whether there are others who are who are uh, impacted in this way. Um, I have called, and I believe it's also essential um, that RTE would now um, publish details of the arrangements that it's entered into with Patrick Kilty, the new presenter of the Late Late Show. Um, I think Patrick Kilty is a very fine broadcaster, but I think it's in his interest, the Late Late's interest, and RTE's interest that we know whatever package uh, has been entered into uh, with him as part of that process of rebuilding. Uh, uh, confidence because I think until we know the full detail of what's happened and until we know then what measures are going to be put in place uh, to address some of those challenges and then uh, you know further action may be necessary once we know the full facts uh, until all of that happens um, there will not be trust uh, among the general public or among us as legislators in RTE. Mm, I think everybody will be very interested uh, to watch uh, and hear what comes out of your committee hearing uh, and indeed uh, that of uh, the PAC committee for that matter. But thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. That is Fianna Fáil Senator Malcolm Byrne. Michael Reid on LMFM. Let's go to Navin Independent Councillor Alan Laws is on the line. Good morning, Alan. Thanks uh, for joining us. Are, Are you still in the council's car park? (laughs) 
I mean, still in the council's car park, uh, Michael, um, what happened in this case was that there was a young couple I was making representations for back before the 12th of, of June. And I'd made numerous text messages, numerous phone calls, numerous emails. And on Friday, I, and they still wasn't given emergency accommodation. So on Friday, I came into the council and I met with... Uh, the head on the day of the council and basically they told me that they'd made every effort they could to find accommodation for this couple but they had nothing and I said okay that's happened before Michael sometimes they run out of beds and I said okay fair enough Mm -hmm. I said look can I look for accommodation because I've done this on many occasions before when they haven't had a bed as an interim measure we've often found accommodation ourselves and even just just a very very short number of weeks ago I found accommodation for a man in actually a Dublin B&B Royal Mead County Council were, were still trying to find a bedroom so it's a, it's a normal thing to happen okay. and so I was astounded when, when Mead County Council said no to me and it also made representations for three homeless men on Friday and when you know the system Michael is we don't have any emergency service in, in, in Mead over the weekend so if, if anyone presents to you there's nothing you can do from a Friday evening until the Monday morning so I knew that the kids were going to be left out for another weekend and their story was that you were actually they were sleeping in an underground car park uh, at one stage and they felt a little bit safe there but basically the security in the, in the, the building moved them on and now they were on the streets when, when, the, when it came to Friday so I tried to explain that to the council but basically was given to deaf ear but I was down to be told no I couldn't try myself mm. and when I did try myself there was accommodation available in a and b over in Trim and you know I, I, I could have found this couple accommodation so I felt I'd nothing it nothing else that I could do but do something for a young 20 year old girl that's been left to sleep on the street with her partner so um, I have a high age fan Michael so I, I said to them look I, I have to then put this couple up myself in some way shape or form so I allowed the couple to sleep in, in the back of the, the high age fan with me and then on a Friday evening we had another girl present who was 25 years of age who was put out of emergency accommodation on a Wednesday was assaulted on the street which she reported to the guards and she turned up here um, on Friday and I did say to the girl, look, I said, the only way I can allow anybody to stay with me is that there's no alcohol, that there's no drugs and the girl agreed, so I had to call on the services of another female volunteer Michael, because I couldn't be here with two young girls on my own, so one of the female volunteers that helped me with Johnstown Tidy Towns came down in her car and the young girl slept in her car with her and the couple slept in the back of the van and I slept in the front of the van and unfortunately we had to do that It's not. I don't want to be sleeping mm-hmm. in the van over the weekend I don't want to be on Facebook complaining about Mead County Council this should have been sorted with the first or second phone call to Mead County Council it could have been sorted we could have prevented doing anything like they've done now this morning a council official has come out to me and he's taken the details at the time on Friday we knew of the couple and we knew of three single men who were homeless um, the council official has taken their details but then of course like I told you Michael Friday evening another young girl arrived on the scene and mm. now we've taken their the Mead County Council this morning has taken their details um, again as I speak and this is the way the system is I got a phone call this morning from a, a young woman um, in hospital and who was homeless and was very distressed and I asked her to come down to Mead County Council here where I am she hasn't arrived yet and, and like 
I shouldn't be in this situation, Michael. Mm. I shouldn't be having to do this. You shouldn't be talking to me today and, and that. We should have a weekend service at least uh, to, yeah. to do it. And, and to leave... Monday to Friday girls. office hours, though. Is that uh, the only hope yeah, of getting... Yeah, it's Monday to Friday mm. office hours, yeah. yeah. So if it goes after five o'clock and an 18-year-old girl presents herself to me, Michael, as homeless, I can do nothing until Monday morning. And that's not a good system to have. We have to have... When you talk about emergency accommodation, the word emergency is not used lightly. I mean, when you're homeless, it is an emergency to get you off the street. And it should be dealt with in that way. And and since I, I put out a few videos over the weekend, and that, and I got a, just got a call before your show, and I was telling your researcher, Chris, from a lady in Tralee, and she thanked me for doing what I was doing because she told me her third experience was her son... Uh, had addiction issues and she said I couldn't have my son at home anymore and I had to ask my son to leave the house and Kerry County Council left her son on the street for three weeks and like it's just not acceptable Michael and and if you remember what we were talking about the last time I was on your show I mean I faced a situation that me County Council told me on Friday we've no beds the last time I was on your show, we were talking about extra accommodation in the old Dr. Randall's house that was mm. coming on strain and being offered to Mead County Council. Yeah, yeah. Now, if we haven't got enough beds in the system, I know of two offers that Mead County Council has had for um, to be used as emergency accommodation, and they're more than adequate. As I explained to you at the time, I was very excited about it because if Mead County Council signs up for this, and I was just reading through the proposal there, um, and I was thinking, it, I had this couple in mind, and I was reading through the proposal again, and if the Dr. Randall's house was taken over, what the support services would include would be the likes of computer courses for your, you know, for young men and women, the likes of ha- passive courses, and what they're trying to do if they provide them sort of services, like I say to you, was to try to ensure that these kids don't come back through the system. And the HSC hopefully would have maybe a, a, an office on site as well to be could help people with addiction issues as well. And like I say, Michael, I don't like being on your show yeah. talking to you about issues like that. I much preferred when you invited me on the last I just want to correct, yeah, and you were, and I mean, there was some promise and hope in that, but I, I think I have to correct what you said, and okay. and I think you'll be happy to have it corrected. You okay. said you said it's not acceptable that young people are sleeping on the streets after yeah. five o'clock or over the weekend. It is acceptable. That's the system, and that's what we're all accepting. Yeah, well, I suppose. The general population might be accepting that, Michael. But when you look deeper into it, when you meet these people, it, it, sh- right it shouldn't. There. It shouldn't it be shouldn't accepted. Be. Well, you it know, when you sit in your armchair at home yeah. in your nice warm house and yeah. you're thinking, "Ah, oh, well, that's mm. the way the system is." But when you get a young girl coming up to you distressed, like I had on Friday evening, nowhere to go, I'm thinking, "How can I help this this child?" You in can't. My mind? You can't unless um, unless you do something yourself, and that's what well, you I'm did. And lucky. I think I'm people very are lucky saying because. I'm very lucky here in, in yeah. Johnstown because I have a, such a great community. Yeah. Um, like people yeah. delivered food over to us. I had mm. a man delivered a mattress yeah. over to me for the back of the van. I had a lady, a lady, one of the Sinn Féin, local Sinn Féin members here came in to me last night because I hadn't got a female volunteer last night and I was a bit worried about, right. you know, I can't be staying with two young girls. So the Sinn Féin member took that the 25-year-old girl back to her own home yeah. and let her stay in her own home last night. I have a wonderful community. I can only do what I do because because of the sports of that community. But again, I mean, 
the community shouldn't be doing this. We should have a better system. I'd love to work with Mead County Council to provide a better system. Mm. And it's unfortunate that, uh, you know, I was met by officials first thing this morning, and thanks very much for doing that, Mead mm. County Council, but it shouldn't have to go to these lengths to be taken seriously, Michael. We shouldn't be in this position. Yeah. Alan, I have to leave there. Thank you indeed for joining us. Thanks very much for inviting me on the show, Michael. Appreciate uh, it. As thank always, you. thank you indeed, Independent Councillor Alan Laws. Michael Reed on LMFM. There was uh, some controversy uh, last month uh, when a a motion uh, that was uh, tabled uh, by independent uh, councillor in Louth Maybure was pulled from the council agenda. It seems uh, that that was uh, the decision of uh, the council's CEO. Uh, i read the motion to you again. It said that Loud County Council supports all victims of child sexual abuse and condemns the current litigation strategy chosen by the Christian Brother Order as illustrated on RTE primetime 7th of February. Furthermore, that this council writes to the Christian Brothers leadership team condemning the litigation strategy and this council called upon our members in the borough district of Drogheda to rescind the freedom of Drogheda bestowed on the then leader of the Christian Brothers who presided over the order's instigation of this strategy. Now that's uh, the second time that uh, that motion has been read on this programme. It was read previously by Councillor Yor uh, and I don't think uh, that there's anything for us to worry about. I don't think we're going to be sued, uh, that we've defamed anybody or anything like that. Uh, It's quite straightforward stuff really uh, in terms of uh, litigation Uh, but uh, the reason it was pulled from the agenda of the County Council was uh, that it may have been defamatory. Apparently that was legal advice given to the Chief Executive Officer. Now official documents at Loud County Council state that the Council's CEO noted the unhappiness of the Cahirlock and his disagreement with her decision to pull Mayviore's motion in June. Uh, the Cahirlock then was Fianna Fáil Councillor Conor Keelan, who joins us now. And a very good morning to you and thank you for joining us on the programme today, Conor Keelan. Good morning, Michael. What more can you tell us? Well, at the, um, at the CPG uh, meetings, um, a draft agenda is shown to... Um, uh, the Dan Kihirok of the council together with um, other councillor representatives um, who are members of uh, various um, strategic policy committees together with all of the council officials who are there and um, comments are reported uh, about what will occur on the agenda in subsequent weeks and um, I uh, I asked a question pertaining to the uh, to the relevant motion and uh, was informed that it was going to be removed from the agenda. And um, uh, I, I asked why and um, I was told that it was that it was the farm tree and um, I asked the question with legal advice and um, uh, I was told it had been sought and it had been received and um, but it was not being shared. And um, I uh, I asked um, would I see it and I'm sorry I would not and um, that um, also the other councillors wouldn't see it either and um, uh, including the audit of motion so that was one of the reasons why I was unhappy with the um, with the actions 
mm. uh, pursued. Um, in a sense, uh, you see, at the previous meeting, um, I had been contacted in advance by some of the uh, by some individuals who had been um, affected by that issue, and um, uh, I had told them that I would support the motion um, if it went to full council uh, and was and was heard. So um, this is then I I discovered it was going to be pulled uh, from the agenda. So um, I. Uh, I expressed my unhappiness with it, and also the fact that legal advice, which had been sought, was not going to be circulated either. Right. Um, did you question the legal advice? Well, I hadn't seen the legal advice. I know, but you were told that the legal advice uh, considers the motion to be defamatory. Did you question mm-hmm. that? Um, well, I, uh, well, I did... 
it must be said that I wasn't present at that meeting uh, due to the fact that I um, uh, I contracted COVID as it happens. So I wasn't there at present. So I didn't have to. So in the event if the motion had been there, I wouldn't have had to rule on same. Um, so um, I, uh, as it happens, there was the previous month, uh, legal advice had been sought um, on same motion, uh, but it had been shared uh, with, um, it had been shared to myself and had been shared to, um, uh, with Councillor Yaw on that occasion. Mm. And um, uh, so on that basis, um, I believe a, a basis, synopsis of... On, 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 on that basis, I felt that why there wouldn't be any advice provided on the second occasion, you know? Okay. Uh, and did did you see the legal advice from uh, the firm of solicitors or did you get a synopsis from the council? I was given, um, on the first occasion, I was given uh, a copy of the written advice. Okay. And uh, uh, my uh, solicitor's counsel, you always given a copy of the same. Okay. And uh, uh, on what basis was it considered to be defamatory? It was stated by officials that it was considered defamatory. That was the legal advice they received. And, um, but but you I didn't see you didn't see legal advice that stated. I was I asked for it and I wasn't given. Okay. And it it was. Uh, and the month well, previous, you, you it, never it saw. Was a wider issue. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm just. I'm just. Okay. Well. I'm just confused. Did you say that you saw legal advice in May? I did. Yes. Okay. And did that state that it was defamatory? There was. Um, there was. Uh, there was a concern was, was was raised that it that it could be there was a concern was raised in that legal advice that it could be um that um for instance I was informed that uh, if the motion went to the floor that I would have to raise a concern with the members that if they commented on the motion um not having privilege as exists in the office that um that, um, uh, that they could potentially open us up to a legal okay. uh, problem. Okay, um, and, and, that's, and that, um, that, that, that's, that's as I understood it, Connor. Uh, so, so, sorry for interrupting it. But that, what you're telling us there now, and correct me if I'm wrong, what you're telling us there now is the legal advice is that the motion in itself is not defamatory, but the concern of the firm of solicitors was that if it was to be debated in the chamber, it could result in one of the members saying something defamatory. Well, that was one of the main issues, yeah. Okay, but that would be uh, for you as the Cahirlach to decide uh, and to rule upon uh, and indeed to uh, control during the debate. Correct. Now, um, you received a diktat, did you not, from uh, the CEO that this motion was not going to be debated? Well, I wouldn't, well, um, shall we say it was, uh, it was their opinion, shall we say, that it wasn't going to be debated. It was the opinion shared around the room. But you disagreed. You disagreed with that. I disagreed with it, And you said you were unhappy. Yeah. And you wanted the motion to be on the council agenda. I felt in the issue of consistency. And do you believe that that, uh, how all of that turned out, that the CEO uh, decided to pull the motion 
against your will. Do you believe that that is in line with the Local Government Reform Act, which suggests that the role of the chief executive in a matter like this is to advise and assist and to do no more than to advise and assist. In other words, could have advised you that this could end up being defamatory if people said something uh, that we don't know they're going to say at this stage. Uh, but it was up to you to make the ultimate decision. Well, look, looking this way, uh, Michael, um, what powers do councillors have, in a sense? Because they've been eroded successfully through various um, alleged reforms of the local government. Uh, system. But it is like, a reserved um, function the, the of... Counselors, the councillors have the power to put forward motions or otherwise. Or put forward those questions or otherwise. You know what I mean? Um, because our powers have been eroded consistently over the past number of decades and increased power has been given to chief executives all around the country um, and to custom house as well. So, like, do, do councillors have the power anymore to actually raise a motion and say what they want in said motion? Or our motion is going to be then ruled out of order for various reasons. And the, the particular councillor who raised an motion is not going to be actually given legal advice for a particular, the legal opinion. Okay, but they, informed they, they, that the matter is potentially the family. But isn't that up to the council, meaning the councillors to decide to proceed or not? Uh, isn't, that is my view. That isn't, is my it, isn't it a reserved function of the councillors? Isn't well, that it is true? My opinion. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. It, isn't it true to say, you're, you're agreeing, I understand that, isn't it true to say that the chief executive should not be able to overrule the councillors on a reserved function of the councillors and that in this situation it appears that that is exactly what happened? Well, as, well, one of the points you made, Michael, was in relation to consistency, you see, because the fact is that I felt that if, that, like, the motion in itself on May and May was withdrawn, as you recall yourself. But, it, um, but if the, like, if the motion is put back on an agenda, on the submitted to the agenda, if it's proposed and saying that the motion should be heard. That's my opinion. It's up then to the councillors whether there's a vote taken or otherwise and whether it's supported or not. And when you say it's your opinion, um, you, you you believe that that's how it should um, operate under the Local Government Reform Act. I um, look in my role as chairman. I have to form a balance between the councillors and with the um, the executive branch of local authority. That's what I have to do. Yeah. But first and foremost, I'm representative of the, of the, the councillors. First and foremost. But if the role of the chief executive is to advise and assist, did the chief executive not act outside of her role and step outside of her remit and undermine the reserved function that councillors have? Well, I think... um Well, I think you. I think that. I think that 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 could be said, sir. Can I can I, I just press you on that? I mean, would you like that clarified somehow? Uh, I, I think you're reluctant to say it. I'm getting the impression that that's what you think, uh, but you're reluctant. Well, well to- no, I'm. Well, it's not as much like 
and we're looking to see it in opposite. I'm saying that I'm saying that could be said. You know what I mean? And um, I made the point previously about the role of local councillors, like mm. the roles we have. I mean, like you forgot to preserve functions, and um, and if we if we're not allowed to have <laughs> if we're not allowed to forward motions or questions because they're considered um, an annoyance, what role do we have going forward if we continue to lose? Already, if we can't but it's a matter. It's a, a, but it's a matter of law. Well, yes, that's the point. We either have powers or we don't in different areas. What would you like to happen next? Uh, I'm, like, I, I'm hearing you say that what happened shouldn't have happened. It's my opinion. Yes, that's why it, it should have gone ahead. And if it got support, it got support. Or if it didn't, it didn't. You know. Mm. And that what happened would have been in breach of the Act? Well, in my view, the mo- if the motion was heard, it was either supported or not. That mm. was my own view. Oh, yeah, and that's up to everybody yeah. too. But but, yeah. but what the Chief Executive did was in breach of the Act, was it? Well, if I was chairing the meeting, as there was ill, unfortunately, but if I had been chairing the meeting, I would have possibly express my opinion on that, but as was there, I'm not going to deal with how Okay? Okay. Okay. Okay, T- Connor. thank you uh, indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, uh, yeah. it, it is there something else you'd like to add to that? Because it's a, a very complicated issue for our listeners. Um, well, look, look I'll just say this like, at the moment. I, uh, I'm, it's, it's nice weather outside. I'm currently here canvassing again. Um it's going to be my fourth election contest, but I'm still going forward anyway, you know? Mm. And, um, like, um, uh, because politics is about serving the people. And um, I'm not disillusioned about politics, but I'm keeping going anyway, you know? Mm. And um, uh, like things like that can, um, can things like, like I didn't perform the motion myself, but I said I would support it. Now, because I had the right to be heard, and I've done that in the past, to people who have, to people who have put forward motions and may not get support in the chamber, but the right to have the motion heard, okay? And um, it's only fair then see if it's, it stands right away. And um, I feel that the motions, whether different people don't like it or not, it should be actually heard in the chamber. They have right to do that because they're elected. Okay. And um, so some people out there may not think, like, why, why is the media to actually go forward for, for an election right away? But anyone who does deserves respect. You know, once you put a name on the ballot paper, is there some respect? And um, if you put forward, mm. if you put forward yourself for action and put, use reserve functions, go on ahead. And okay. um, and is it that the executive yeah. isn't showing that respect in acting that way? Well, I'm talking about politics in general. Yeah. You know. Okay. Okay, Connor. Thank you very much indeed. As I say, okay. for joining us. Thank you indeed. Uh, former Kerhlakov, Louth County Council, Fianna Fáil Councillor Connor Keelan. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, we heard about uh, the elderly woman uh, given a pseudonym, Emily, who was raped in a nursing home and how shocked I think uh, the country was by that revelation last week. Uh, But after Emily had been raped in that nursing home and after her rapist was convicted of that most heinous crime and sent to prison for 11 years. That same nursing home was inspected by HICWA. And they gave them, in terms of protection of residents, believe it or not, compliant. They were compliant. And they said, 
There was evidence to show that where allegations of abuse were made, that the provider acted according to best practice, ensuring that the alleged victim was prioritised, protected and provided with the necessary levels of support. The provider was keen to learn from instances where allegations were made. Now, the fact is that on the files of that nursing home, there are, I understand, at least seven other cases of allegations of rape or sexual, uh, sexual interference. There was medical evidence that there, were, there was vaginal bleeding, that there were infections, that this lady and other people in this nursing home had serious medical issues as a result of the allegations that they made, which were not believed at all, uh, and doesn't seem to have been looked at by HICWA when they went in there. That's Fergus O'Dowd from the Gale TD for Loud and East Mead speaking in uh, the Dáil last week. Fergus O'Dowd is on uh, the line with us now and good morning to you. Thanks as always for joining us. Before we talk about HICWA, uh, you mentioned there that there were seven other people in that nursing home who had uh, alleged to have been assaulted by this man who ended up in jail for the rape of Emily. Uh, The HSE Chief Executive Bernard Gloucester has upped that figure. Uh, According to the Irish Times this morning, there could have been more than 30 assaults by the same man. Yes, or, or indeed there may have been other people involved. I, I don't actually know. But what I do know is that uh, HICWA, who are the inspectors of all nursing homes, a short time after the court case where the rapist got 11 years and he should have got 20, in my view, uh, they, 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 they went in and they gave a clean bill of health to the nursing home. Now, either they weren't shown the actual records or they didn't see them or they didn't ask for them. But, like, you know, it, it's not acceptable that the inspector at HICWA, who have the powers to look at these files, and they actually went in there with complaints, now, more than one, about, about the care of people in it. So there are huge questions to be answered by HICWA in relation to the care of everybody. Mm. And it's not just a question, Michael, of, of saying an inspector. An inspector goes in there, he goes in there, she goes in there. The most they do is from nine to five, one day, one day in the year, yeah. in any nursing home. We need a lot more accountability than that. Now, I don't. you can't have an inspector at every corner in every room. Mm. But what you can have is, is an assessment over, say, a week, uh, you know, one, you know, this couldn't happen obviously without the appropriate staff. And then you have a plan, and you you review that quarterly or every year or whatever to make sure the care improves. You know, and, and that will give mm. you know that will give a better quality of care. Am I right? Okay, that people are paying thousands. Oh yeah, they're paying yeah. thousands. Um, well, you know, it, 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 I'm well. not even sure that uh, matters uh, if they were paying tuppence. Uh, you oh, can't, I know that. No, you, I agree. It yeah. but you can't have elderly people raped yeah. and abused yeah. uh, in their beds in a nursing home. Yeah. Uh, and you told the Dala, I think, uh, that HICWA saw evidence of complaints being made, uh, but they suggested that the nursing home acted according to best practice. Uh, I think there's a, a very serious question about what best practice is, isn't there? Well, well that's my point, Michael. Yeah. Why I comment on the, on the monies is that nursing homes are complaining that they don't have adequate funding, mm. but right, they're getting a hell of a lot of money from the state and then from people themselves separately. And my point is that you know we need we need to be able to have 
a better system of control, a better system of vigilance, a better system of governance, better, more improvements. Uh, you know, and, and it can't be a defence to that argument that we don't have enough money, you know, as they, mm. you know, as some of these nursing home providers around the country, you know, complain about all the time. And, and uh, how did HICWA investigate it, or to put that another way, why did they stop after 21 files if uh, the HSC is now saying there were 30 complaints? Yeah, well, this, this is part of the problem. And that's why, that's why the HSC have put in place now a, you know, a specialist actually from Northern Ireland who is very highly qualified and, as I understand, extremely well respected to report directly to the head of the HSE within a period of six weeks initially to look at that issue. Now, it's been left open for that lady to actually look at all the files or not to. Well, my view is that she has to look at all of them. And even if people whose names are on those files even if they've passed on, sadly, or if they're unable to communicate, because don't forget, a lot of these people have dementia. They're all elderly, they're in the latter stages of life. They're extremely vulnerable. They're, you, know, you, know, you know, that the people who, who were there at the home at that night, on that time, when that note was made, you know, you know, they, they should be accountable. And, and, and get, we need to get the full facts. And we need to apply it universally across all homes. This was a HSE home run by the state. It's disgusting that this happened there, but it could have happened anywhere. Mm. And, and uh, you know, the point is we're not doing enough to protect older people. That's why we need, you know, we need we need a lot of changes, Michael. I know you haven't got a lot of time mm. today, mm. but, like, we need a, a statutory home care scheme where people can stay in their homes rather than go into a nursing home and get the support and the care they need. Uh, we need safeguarding legislation where we hold people accountable, where we have higher standards. We need HICO reform. Uh, we need to look at the best practice internationally, you know, accepting that we can't have an inspector in every home on every day of the year. How do we set our plans? How do we ensure that there is progress and increased care? We need a, na- a national adult safeguarding authority. We need a commission of care. Now, all of these things have been promised by the government, Michael. Mm. But going back to that, uh, going back to that um, best practice, uh, surely that comes down to uh, listening to people, even if they have dementia, and not dismissing complaints out of hand. That's the core of it, Michael. If somebody makes a complaint about being raped or sexually interfered or physically abused. I think it's absolutely, you must believe them until you can prove that, you know, prove up the opposite. But what happens is they don't doubt them. They say, oh, sure, look, they have dementia. That couldn't be right. Sure, Johnny, he's, a, you know, he's, he's never done and He couldn't possibly do that. I think in America, there's evidence that a lady who complained about being raped, what they did was they, they actually put her in a psychiatric hospital. And you can see that case on CNN if you look at it. In other words, they didn't believe the person. If the person makes an allegation, even if they have dementia, mm. you must believe them and you must follow it up in every event. You must notify the guardie. You must notify the safeguarding team. And what happened in the case of this nursing home is that, yes, the reports were written in the file and only one, one of, I know, of at least 20 because we have more information from last week. And from yesterday, it appears 30 uh, weren't sent to the Guardian. So that's, that's, 
you know, that, that's, that's not acceptable at all. And, and that's the issue, Michael, is it's important, you see, because many people, sadly, to look at older people, ageism, they're, you know, you, you know what I'm saying to you there. Mm. We need to change the way we view older people and, and, and we need to respect them more and we need to protect them more and that sexual and physical abuse of older people should be, should be, should be treated exactly the same as abuse, sexual abuse of children and all of that because it's equally as bad. An, old, an older person with dementia is as vulnerable as, as an eight-year-old mm. child or a 10-year-old mm. child. Mm. You know, and, and we have to get that message across mm. and we must protect older people more. And I know mm. families are traumatised and shocked by what's happened to their loved ones, you know, say during COVID. We need the inquiry into COVID. We need, we need the inquiry into Dalvin mm. Nursing Home. We need all these things, yeah. and uh, I'm pressing, and just one voice in the doll. But you know, I'm pressing to get these changes, and your organisation or your, your your radio articulates and support people who want that change. And you know, I, I, I have a debate on Wednesday night at the Fine Gael Parliamentary Party on this issue as well. So I'm not going to let it go. Uh, but okay. you know, we just need to change people. Okay. You know, we, we, and the other point is, a lot, some other people that are nursing homes, they may be they may be widows or widowers. You know, there's sexual abuse of males as well. Mm. Uh, you know, they, they may be they may have no no living relative. It's horrifying. The, night, mm. the nightmare mm. for that lady. It's COVID time. Mm. Four o'clock in the morning, this evil, evil monster comes into a room and rapes her. You know, I mean, just think about that. Mm, Truly horrific. I I mean, and the victim, more or less, a a prisoner in her own home. Exactly. And her family can't visit her. They couldn't even see her afterwards because of the COVID regulations. You know, and that one, look, you just, okay. you just can't imagine. But well, uh, we will be hearing... Everybody else, mm. you know, the other people who appear as not have been abused in that home. Yeah. You know, how long does it go on? You know, and how do you how do you protect them? Well, as you so, say, look, we'll hear... We... to make sure that we bring these things forward and I will mm-hmm. continue to do so, Michael. Sure thing. And as you say, we'll hear more from Jackie McElroy's uh, report. Uh, when that it would be published. very, very important. No, and I must say, I don't normally praise the HSC, but I, I think that the new chief executive has made very clear that he wants this lady reported directly to him and that he is unhappy with the existing structures in the mm. HEC that they're not fit for purpose. They're not fit for purpose in HICRA either. Mm. So I think this is an opportunity to bring about that change that's needed. Mike. Well, we all have a duty of care to people in nursing homes and it really is an appalling situation uh, that has unfolded. We have to leave it there for now, though, and thank you thank indeed, you, as thank always, you. for joining us. Fine Gael, TD for Loud and East Mead, Fergus O'Dowd. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the Consultative uh, Forum on International Security is underway for its third meeting in Dublin Castle today. It's taking a a look at Ireland's relationship with uh, the EU and NATO, uh, amongst other things uh, today. And let's uh, discuss what this will result in with Fine Gael TD, Alan Farrell and Sinn Féin's Matt Carthy. Good morning to both of you and thank you indeed for joining us. Alan Farrell, you heard from your party leader and Taoiseach uh, this morning. What did Mr Vradker have to say? Well, good morning, Michael, and thanks for having me on the programme. Um, well, the Taoiseach outlined uh, the need for us to review our security, uh, our policies uh, in relation to foreign affairs and other matters, as you would expect. 
uh, given he was speaking at the forum uh, on international security policy. Um, I think he set out um, a number of um, uh, arrangements that we have both with the European Union and indeed our um, very um, long-held um, uh, position in relation to uh, UN uh, peace uh, and uh, uh, missions, I should say, um, around the world over many, many years since mm. the 1960s. And did anybody uh, say to the Taoiseach when you entered into a lot of those uh, arrangements with uh, the EU that there were many people concerned uh, that you'd end up using them as a- an excuse or a justification for going a step further? Not during the course, well, he didn't mention it during the course of his mm. contribution, Michael. I'm sure it has been mentioned during the course of the two prior days uh, of discussion held both in Cork and in Galway, and I'm sure it'll come up today. But those, those critics are proving correct, aren't they? When Ireland joined PESCO or some of... Uh, well, what is PESCO, Michael, uh, uh, versus uh, what people in the anti-war movement, in, for example, um, take a position on? I mean, you know, Ireland has had a long-held position of military neutrality and non-alignment. Uh, we've had that position f- since uh, before the uh, Second World War. It's not an unsurprising position given our history and the reason for being non-aligned during the Second World War. Um, uh, that has now borne into a, a policy uh, that has been held by many governments over decades. Mm. Uh, we don't involve ourselves in wars. We do involve ourselves in peacekeeping missions. Uh, we do involve ourselves in the security policy framework for mm. the for the globe through the UN, and we saw that with our membership of the European Chairmanship, I should say, of the European of the uh, UN Security Council. Something that we should be really proud of, given our contribution to it. Um, and in the backdrop of the. Uh, unjust and unjustifiable war in Ukraine by the Russian Federation is something that I think, you know, has shown all governments, particularly in the European Union, that we need to review carefully mm, our position okay. on, on international security and on our defensive positions. L- l- let me go to Matt Carthy, because our security position, our position of neutrality, neutrality is one of choice. Uh, the government doesn't need to consult with the admirals, the generals or the rest of them, as uh, the case may be, or the people, as the case may be, for that matter. It can Aside uh, Ireland's uh, position in terms of neutrality or security. So is it not a, a good thing it's holding these forums? Well, I welcome any level of discussion and debate because for far too often and for far too long, Irish governments have been making decisions that have profound and long-reaching consequences with virtually no public discussion, even minimal um, interaction with the Oireachtas. And I would have particularly welcomed if the opposition had been given a formal role at this forum, which we weren't, um, unfortunately, I've been attending all days of the of the forum, and while there's opportunities for me as everyone else to raise our hands um, and ask questions, unfortunately, we've seen and we'll see over the course of the um, five days or four days, five occasions in which government ministers can't come in, make speeches, take no questions, and leave the room again. Um, that's not. Uh, consultative forum that's not uh, a debate. The difficulty we have Michael is that we're dealing with parties that have on one hand been undermining our neutrality um, but on the second hand have seen and overseen the systemic underinvestment in our defence forces. So while government representatives have pointed to the cyber attack on the HSE and the uh, presence of um, Russian vessels in Irish waters, 
they haven't actually mentioned the fact that they hadn't invested in the type of security defense um, that we would that would have prevented that cyber attack, and they haven't invested in our naval um, and other elements of our defense forces. So I think the the, the, the other glaring omission from the uh, the statements of government ministers is the fact that Irish neutrality has actually served us incredibly well, apart from the fact that mm. I believe it has kept Irish citizens... So, so is it that you think we should spend more... Uh, uh, apart from um, terms, conditions of employment, do you believe that we should spend more on defence to uh, defend ourselves rather than enter into arrangements with other countries uh, who have a lot of uh, the uh, necessary equipment already? Yes, I believe we should be investing more in our defences. I believe that Irish neutrality is something that actually needs to be protected is, and we shouldn't be reliant on others. OK, let, 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 let me ask Alan Farrell uh, about that. Is that possible? Uh, have we the wherewithal uh, to do that uh, in terms of personnel, expertise and indeed funding? Well, there's a, as you're aware, Michael, uh, the government commissioned the Commission on the Defence Forces, which was published last year. I think it's a very welcome document, which sets out three levels of ambition, one, two and three. One being we do nothing, we, we don't change our position. Two, we, we significantly increase our funding uh, up to a certain point, And then three being basically all bells and whistles for the purposes of discussion. Uh, we chose two, which I suppose was probably the, the middle ground. Um, and it does recognise that we have to invest in our capacity to defend the nation. It does recognise that we have to, to invest in the capacity of our personnel and, of course, to retain them, which is the most important aspect, um, as the teacher rightly pointed out, in a full economy when there are so many other opportunities for these highly skilled and well-trained individuals within our defence forces. So that's an ongoing challenge. But in terms of um, uh, policing the security of the state, you know, all you have to do is look at our, our um, uh, EEZ, which is the area outside of our territorial waters, which is about 13 times the state size of the state, um, with a limited number of military vessels or um, uh, naval vessels, I should say, uh, at, at, uh, at, at our fingertips at any given point. Clearly, we have to increase the number of personnel there. We have to increase the number of uh, vessels that we're purchasing so that we're able to actually patrol those Mm. Uh, those waters, but also our skies as well. Mm. Ireland doesn't have primary radar. But is that enough, I suppose, is the question. Do we need to enter into these uh, agreements and arrangements with other countries? That is is a really valid point, a really valid question. And I think you have to bear in mind that our constitution precludes us from entering into military alliances, but that's all it does. It doesn't say that we can't cooperate um, with certain arrangements in order to learn more, in order to have the capacity to um, engage in processes which... which European military alliances, isn't it? No, 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 I'm not saying European military alliances. We don't have a constitutional bar on joining NATO. Uh, We have a... Well, the constitution states that we um, are not uh, allowed to uh, engage in military alliances. And the NATO... Uh, for for want of a better description, I would certainly mm. classify it as military um, military organisation. Okay. On which basis, I would not uh, wish to join NATO. But the government has not stated that uh, that we have a desire mm. to join NATO. In fact, okay. quite the contrary. Is the that entire it, forum is a non-binary discussion? It is an information 
meeting uh, over four days, mm. the result of which will be Professor Richardson's report, which will be submitted to the department uh, with the mm. for review, and then it'll be brought then to Cabinet and, okay. and onwards to the law. Let me go back to Matt Carthy, because if Alan Farrell is right, Matt Carthy, um, you've nothing to worry about, uh, because we will remain a neutral state until such time that there's a referendum on the issue. Well, no, that's actually not what the Constitution says and the Taunish, uh, for example, who's leading out on this um, consultative forum, um, is on the record as stating that it wouldn't require a referendum to join NATO. But regardless of that, I don't believe that there's actually ever going to be a formal application by Ireland to join NATO. In the first instance, we don't have the level of military that NATO would demand. But what I do see is uh, um, a very clear trajectory that governments are um, embarked on, which is to align ourselves with um, programmes and with operations that are clearly part of the wider NATO military mm. uh, and, and, and military framework. Um, and that's why I think that it would be very useful if we did have a constitutional protection in respect of neutrality. The best way of achieving that would be through a citizens' assembly to agree on a wording and a framework of yeah. that and then to allow the Irish people ultimately... What, to, what's your uh, ultimate concern, though? Is it that Irish troops will die on international battlefields or is it that Ireland will become a, a target uh, for the allies of our partners? Well, um, Irish troops have died on um, on battlefields and they've done so as part of UN peacekeeper missions and we're very proud of the role that Irish peacekeepers um, have made. Um, and But crucial to that is that they have died on EU-sanctioned peacekeeping mm. missions and that has been a key element of the international reputation that we have. So while a lot of government representatives are rightly proud that Ireland... Yeah, but are you concerned that boys being sent to war? Are you concerned that we become a, a target for the enemy of our allies? Well, I think it's, it's all of that. But more importantly, what I want to see is Ireland continue to play a positive and constructive role in the world. And the best way in which we can do that is as a neutral country with an independent foreign policy that okay. is committed to diplomacy, that is committed to disarmament, that is committed to humanitarianism, and that actually plays a role in conflict resolution as opposed to conflict participation. Okay, and Alan Farrell, you'd say that Matt Carthy has nothing to worry about? I don't believe that any person in the state has anything to worry about by a conversation um, led by um, an esteemed um, uh, professor who uh, has the capacity to, I hope, guide the conversation across the 18 different panel discussions mm. um, over yeah, as, as she does in uh, the United States uh, with uh, the Car- uh, Car- um, Carnegie um, Corporation, isn't it? I, I, I don't know, mm. Michael, yeah. if you say so. But mm. I, I think the point that I would like to make is that this conversation, um, I think, is entirely necessary. As you know, Michael, a lot of other countries in Europe have already engaged in this process. Um, but in order to inform better um, policymakers like Matt and myself, we have the opportunity to, to hear from expertise. He has listened in, I have listened in, and I hope to get there at some point tomorrow to listen in on some of the uh, debates that will be taking okay. place. And, and I would say, you know, this report... Um, can be adopted or it doesn't have to be adopted. It can it can absolutely inform future yep. policy. Well, the conversation is underway. Our time has run out and I have to end our conversation. But thank you both very much indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Fine Gael TD, Alan Farrell and Matt Carthy, a Sinn Féin TD. 
Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Dundalk is the dirtiest town in Ireland. Conor Hogan, spokesperson with the Irish Business Against Litter on the Line. Conor, how did this happen? Well, it's the first time we've seen a town that was atop our charts fall so badly. And we have seen towns at the bottom come up, but we haven't seen the reverse happen. So this is especially disappointing. The case with Dundalk was there were practically no clean sites. They weren't all black spots. There were just two litter black spots. That was uh, at the Closed Recycle Bank and the Environs on Castle Town Road um, and also at the car park and adjacent waste ground. But um, it was a case that the only clean site was an approach road, the R132 approach road. Mm. So um, if I go through the other areas, um, Castle Town River Bridge was heavily littered. The recycle facility at Tesco was littered. The waste ground at the corner of Maxwell and St. Nicholas was littered. And unfortunately, just not enough bright spots in the town. Mm. From the cleanest town, from being cleaner than European norms to the dirtiest town, now considered to be seriously littered. Uh, it, it really is a, a drop uh, going from top place to 40th place in your league. Um, as you say, you're very surprised by that. Uh, what do you think went wrong? Did somebody take their eye off the ball? It's, it's very hard to know because, you know, something similar happened last year with Drogheda. And, um, like, we're always talking about, you know, the consistent performers in our league. And it is the case that if you look at the top 10 in our chart, every time we produce these surveys, it tends to be occupied by the same towns. But, you know, Drogheda last year was in the same position than D- that Dundalk is today. And that despite it having been a top five performer in the past. So it's, it's, it's very unusual. I, I can't explain it. Um, but mm. there's probably lessons for Dundalk in, in, in the Drogheda case and certainly of course how Drogheda have rebounded today which is a great success story Alright uh, and it's the same local authority of course but some attention was given to some of the problem sites in Drogheda you're reporting particularly the recycling facility in Ballsgrove Yes I mean it was clear generally and I noticed on social media that there was clearly a real effort being made we saw some of it at the end of the year when the result improved and, um, you know, a real effort being made to make sure that Drogheda was not going to remain seriously littered. And <clears throat> and that's between the council and business groups and the community generally. And thankfully, it has borne fruit. Yes, even the recycle facility was deserving at the top grade. We don't see that too often. They tend to be dirty. Marley's Lane was significantly cleaner than in previous surveys. St. Lawrence Street, Marsh Road, West Street... They all improved. So, you know, it is an example of what can happen in a short period of time when the community gets together to try and fix the problem. Okay, if we look at Navan in County Meath, which is uh, the third of uh, the local towns in the LMFM area that is surveyed by your group, St. Patrick's Park has always been a problem uh, and something that you've called on the council continuously to look at. It remains the most heavily littered site surveyed in Navin, but Navin has come up in the league and is now clean to European norms. Yes, and that site has improved as well, so there is some good news there. Where Navin stood out is that there were no very heavily littered sites and of course St. Patrick's Park had been a very heavily littered site. This time I think it got a C grade so that was an improvement. Half the sites surveyed got the top litter grade. That was enough to give Navin this mid-table position but clean to European norms. That's the main thing. 
Okay. And what is causing litter generally in the towns in Ireland? You're still seeing evidence of COVID. We, we, well, we're not seeing PPE litter anymore. We are still seeing alcohol-related litter in the form of cans and bottles, more than before COVID, less than at the peak. And coffee cups have established themselves as an important litter item. They were in 20% of all the hundreds of sites that we surveyed. So I think people's behaviour have changed, has changed with COVID. Mm. They are still enjoying their coffee on the move. Unfortunately, too many of those coffee cups are ending up on the ground. So that is now a, a, a permanent problem if you like, that we have to deal with. All right. Uh, it's a, a new phenomenon and a, a new litter problem, an old litter problem, cigarette butts, and they continue to be a problem. Yes, very little reduction in cigarette butts, so that continues to be an issue. And we're also seeing vapes now becoming a, a growing issue, particularly for people in the tidy towns and all where they come across clusters of disposable vapes. They're quite a, a harmful item as well in terms of the environment. So we'd, uh, we, know, we'd, we think they should be banned, actually. I think we should live with the syllable vapes. Okay, very good. Uh, and uh, I'm sure before you leave us, uh, you'd like uh, to speak to Louth County Council. Given the massive turnaround, going from top place to 40th uh, place, bottom of the league in such a short period of time, Dundalk uh, certainly needs some attention and some work for that matter. Yes, I would say, but there should be no one better to work out how to fix this problem than the County Council because of the experience with Drata. So there's hope in that. That's Connor Horgan, spokesperson with IBAL, the Irish Business Against Litter League, bringing our programme to its conclusion today. Apologies if uh, you sent us a comment uh, if we didn't get to it. Very busy programme. We'll come to those comments on tomorrow's programme. Thanks to Maggie McGuire who researched today. Chris Murray was in the control tower. I'm Michael. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.